some words from Psalm 32. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation just for a change today. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, Let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. In our prayers of approach this morning, there is a response. Um, This is something I came across at one of the churches I visited in New Zealand. People were invited um, in a responsive prayer to make the response in their own language. Um, And when some people speak in Maori, that's a very long response. The guy did, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And in Maori, hear our prayer is about four sentences long, it felt. Um, What we're going to do today, uh, the response, I'm going to say, Lord, hear us, and I invite you in your own first language, whatever that might be, to say, Lord, graciously hear us, or the nearest approximation to that 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 seems to work for you in, in your language. Is that okay? So let us pray together. God, We thank you for your generous provision, for the everyday blessings that we reel off week by week, and for the unique and special blessings we have known this week. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. God, we thank you for your presence with us for your spirit living in our hearts and minds, and for Jesus' promise that he's always with us to the end of time. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. God, we confess our faults and failings, the everyday sins that we slip into week by week and the unique and regretted moments of this week. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. God, we hear your words of grace spoken to us. Your sins are forgiven. Help us to believe this truth and live its hope. 
Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. God, each week as we gather here, you welcome us. Help us to listen for your voice in word and prayer, song and sharing. Lord, hear us. Lord, graciously hear us. God, who meets with us here and everywhere, accept our praises and our prayers offered in the name of Christ. Amen. Our first reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2 and then uh, moving on to chapter 3, starting at verse 15 in chapter 2. Then the Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and guard it. He said to him, You may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, except the tree that gives knowledge of what is good and what is bad. You must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. Now, the snake was the most cunning animal that the Lord had made. The snake asked the woman, Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? We may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden, the woman answered, except the tree in the middle of it. God told us not to eat the fruit of that tree or even touch it. If we do, we will die. The snake replied, that's not true. You will not die. God said that because he knows that when you eat it, you will be like God and know what is good and what is bad. The woman saw how beautiful the tree was and how good its fruit would be to eat, and she thought how wonderful it would be to become wise. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, and he also ate it. As soon as they had eaten it, they were given understanding and realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. Then our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 4, beginning at the start of the chapter. Then the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After spending 40 days and nights without food, Jesus was hungry. Then the devil came to him and said, If you are God's son, order these stones to turn into bread. But Jesus answered, The scripture says human beings cannot live on bread alone, but need every word that God speaks. Then the devil took Jesus to Jerusalem, the holy city, set him on the highest point of the temple and said to him, If you are God's son, throw yourself down, for the scripture says... God will give orders to his angels about you. They will hold you up with their hands, so that not even your feet will be hurt on the stones. Jesus answered, But the scripture also says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their greatness. All this I will give you, the devil said, if you kneel down. And worship me. 
Then Jesus answered, Go away, Satan. The scripture says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and angels came and helped him. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 asserts that in Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Rather, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. These are beautiful words, if incredibly challenging. And it seems to me that they have the potential to tease us a bit as we come to look at Matthew's account of Jesus' experiences right at the start of his ministry. Jesus, we are told, faces three temptations. To turn rocks into bread, to leap from the top of the temple, and to seize world dominance. Now, I don't know about you, But I can honestly say that none of those three temptations has ever popped into my head. And yet, very often, these temptations are presented to us as if they were the only ones that Jesus faced. Forgetting, of course, Luke's reminder in his equivalent passage that the devil left him until an opportune time. So it's as if these are the only temptations Jesus faced and as if their message for us is transparently clear. It's obvious. This is a one-off set of three explicit and extreme temptations. If only it was that easy, eh? If Jesus was tempted as we are, then this account must in fact serve for us as an example a template for thinking about temptation in general, not a knockdown answer, an object lesson on how to deal with satanic or demonic attacks. I think that I have Reverend Dr. Norman Shanks and the creators of this year's Churches Together in Britain and Ireland Lent material for giving me the spark of inspiration on how to approach this so familiar story. At last Sunday's evening service, Norman noted that one of the temptations Jesus must have faced during his ministry was the temptation to speak out or to remain silent. As we read the Gospels, there are times when Jesus speaks out to calm a storm, to declare forgiveness of sin, to chastise or to warn his followers. And there are times that he does not, notably at his own trial. And I found myself wondering, what if he'd made the opposite choice? What if he'd just allowed the squall on Galilee to run its course? Because it would have blown out eventually. What if he had opted not to speak forgiveness to people? What if he'd tried to defend himself before Pilate? If, as we are told, he was tempted in every way as we are, 
then these would have been real temptations for him. And that's before we even begin to allow our imaginations to run riot with all the temptations that flood the human psyche. All those thoughts that we've had, all those temptations that we've had and everybody else has had. If Jesus had all of those, it amazes me he ever had time to do anything if he was wrestling with all those temptations. What struck me quite forcibly last Sunday was the range of temptations that we all face as we begin to look again at this strange but familiar story. The temptation to demythologize it, as if rationalizing it away as some kind of hunger-induced hallucination saves us needing to engage with it. It's okay, Jesus was just hungry and he imagined it all. Or the temptation to see it as a mysterious story and and beautiful in its own right, but not to bother to try to understand its significance for our lives as followers of Jesus. Or maybe, and I think this is the most common one, the temptation to seek a nice, tidy hermeneutic that will, once and for all, determine and explain the significance of the story. I want to suggest that, in my experience anyway, the way this account and its Lucan parallel has been expounded is based on a kind of a threefold scheme that the temptations are simple, binary, and universal or general, and that it might be more helpful to recognize them as complex, multiple, and contextual or particular. I don't normally stick stuff on PowerPoints, but it kind of felt appropriate. In order for us to try and unpack some of that a bit, and hopefully to help us decide whether this idea of mine has any legs, let's focus our attention on the first temptation, the temptation to turn stones into bread. And I'm going to read it from the NRSV, as it's a particularly accurate translation from the Greek. Then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards, he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you were the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If we view this as a simple or simplex temptation, that means we can clearly identify what it is that Jesus was tempted to do. And we can do that, can't we? The temptation is to turn rocks into bread. But is that good enough? Is that all that is going on here? Is it the only temptation Jesus faces? A complex approach to this example allows us to ask more questions. Is it firstly a temptation to doubt his identity? If you are the son of God... 
Is it a question along the lines of, am I who I am? A cruel parody of the divine, I am who I am. Am I the son of Yahweh, or am I not? Is that one of the things Jesus was wrestling with? Is it the temptation to satisfy his own immediate physical need for food? We're told he's hungry, and that's entirely plausible, isn't it? It's even a reasonable way of reading it. He was hungry, he saw the rocks, he could do this. So he wanted to make himself not be hungry. Or is it a temptation to thaumatogy, the word I used last week, uh, the working of wonders, spiritualized conjuring tricks that would wow those who saw them? After all, a man who could turn straw into gold or rocks into bread would draw crowds, wouldn't he? So was that the temptation? Or perhaps we could be a little bit more generous and do as some scholars do and read back into it Jesus' concern for those who were poor and hungry. The temptation then to fix all the world's problems with a snap of his fingers, restoring Eden or creating utopia with no need for any effort on the part of humankind. Well, Yes, that's possibly what was going on too. Without trying too hard and without stretching that very limited account too far, we can see that rather than one simplex temptation, clear and neatly defined, we have a very complex temptation or set of temptations operating at many levels. Emotional, psychological, physical, intellectual and spiritual. Far from a neat object lesson, we're invited to ponder what was going on in Jesus' head, in Jesus' heart and in Jesus' body. Just how complicated the process of thought that must have arisen from this, I'm hungry and if I'm God's son, I could turn stones into food. A lot going on there. It's not as simple as perhaps we might like to make it. And if we went on to apply the same approach to the other two examples and to allow our imaginations a little bit of license, we would find that they too are very complex, capable of suggesting a whole range of temptations rather than one simple knockdown answer that, frankly, we're never going to face. If the simple, complex pairing operates at the what of the temptation, then the binary, multiplex pairing refers to the response that occurs. A binary understanding of temptation is, I think, inextricably linked to the simple understanding of what it is. In other words, the temptation can clearly be identified as turn stones into bread. And there are only two possible replies. Yes and no. Now, Jesus' no is quite obviously the correct response. We don't need anyone to explain that to us. 
Is that actually what happens? Or perhaps more precisely, is that all that happens? Jesus hears this temptation, which questions his identity, invites him to override the laws of nature, and satisfy at least his own physical hunger. And he replies by citing the Hebrew scriptures. Something which we will discover in the subsequent examples, if we go on to read them, can in and of itself be a very tempting trick. The devil used selecting verses from scripture as a lure to trap Jesus. But setting aside that very real and important caveat for a moment, we see Jesus offering a complex response based on theological thinking. This isn't just about me and my physical hunger. There is a spiritual, even a divine aspect to all of this. Satisfying physical needs is important, but it isn't going to solve all the world's problems. The nurture of a spiritual relationship and maybe the need for theological reflection are both important too. When children are small, sometimes the response a parent or a teacher gives to the why must I do this or why mustn't I do that question is because I say so. And that's maybe okay when children are very small. But as they grow up, we expect them to begin to formulate their own understandings. To discover that issues are very rarely a binary yes, no, right, wrong, but actually a complicated and need thinking about. And what Jesus shows us here in a very condensed form and in an explicitly faith-based way is that a grown-up response to, to temptation is more than just no. But actually it's no, I won't do that because... Yes, I will do the other in the light of. Among the many very real temptations that preachers face is that to identify a timeless, universal message in each and every passage of scripture with which they engage. This endeavour can and does lead to us tying ourselves in knots, contorting our minds and playing dangerous games with the scriptures. Just got to try and wrestle something out of this rather strange verse or passage. If we're a little bit more circumspect, we try and recognise that the passage has a context, both in the scriptures and also a historical context in which the account arose. But there is still this temptation to find that one nugget of truth that we can lift out and apply to all people in all places and all times. And sometimes that's perfectly valid. And sometimes we delude ourselves trying to stretch scripture beyond what it's designed for. Alone in the desert... Jesus rejected the temptation to turn stones into bread. 
And yet, if we take the scriptural record seriously, as indeed we must, then we have a problem. According to Matthew's gospel, on which we are focusing, there are two occasions on which Jesus fed huge crowds of people by supernatural means. Once taking a boy's picnic of five small loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men, plus women and children, and another time to use seven loaves and a few small fish to feed 4,000 men, plus women and children. So how is it the right thing to exercise his divine supernatural powers, however that works out, I'm not going to get into rationalising or demythologizing. how is it right for him to do it in that context and not in the desert? It seems, you see, that there is not a general principle that we can drag out of scripture that says, don't ever perform miracles or always perform miracles. But also, if Jesus fed these two crowds of people who, sure, they were hungry, but they were hardly starving, they probably had their breakfast and their lunch already that day, why didn't he seek out those who literally had no food and give them a meal? We have to avoid being too trivial and too simplistic when we read these things. It does seem that context is an important factor in determining what is the right or the godly response. It does seem that sometimes the right thing to do is to say no. And other times that look very similar to say yes. So... Is it possible that rather than one universal general response, there are only ever contextual particular responses? Or does that then leave us with another temptation to a kind of wishy-washy situation ethics that says, well, that's what it feels right to me, so that's what I'll do? There aren't any neat and tidy answers for me to offer you. There is no obvious object lesson to learn from these examples of Jesus being tempting, except perhaps that there is no obvious object lesson to learn. Temptations are rarely, if ever, simple. And they don't arrive delivered by talking snakes or horned creatures wearing red suits. The tempter is not always that easy to recognise. They well up inside us, a product of our own complex blend of personality, physicality, spirituality, and locality. Whilst the outward appearance of the response might indeed be, yes, I'll do that, or no, I won't do that, it will, or at least it should be, the product of complex soul-searching, prayer, and reflection. And it will also inevitably be contextual and provisional. A response in this moment based on this understanding of this situation. In Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weakness. 
but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus didn't sin, but he could have. Jesus didn't fall short, not because he was divine and it was easy, but because he experienced in every way what it means to be tempted and he chose the best path on each occasion. There is no temptation we can experience that Jesus hasn't known, if we trust that passage, that verse of scripture. He's always with us to share in our struggles, in our temptations, whatever they might be, and to help us to find a way through that will give us abundant life now and the hope of eternity. Amen. Let us come together in prayer with our hearts full of needs of others that we know or we've read about, but let us begin with ourselves. Lord Jesus Christ, you refuse to turn stones into bread. Save us from using our power, however little, to satisfy the demands of selfishness in the face of the greater needs of others. Needs we carry every day. Needs we overhear. Needs we misconstrue. Needs we overlook. Needs we criticise. Needs we don't understand. Needs which leave us floundering for words. Needs we haven't even seen. Lord Jesus Christ, you refuse to leap from the temple top. Save us from displaying our skills, however modest, to win instant popularity in the face of nobler calls on our abilities. Calls to put the kettle on. Calls to take time. Calls to take risks. Calls to take responsibility. Calls which are unseen. Calls which are unnoticed. Calls which are menial, calls which are hard, calls pushing us in directions we didn't want to go, calls to us, not to others, calls we haven't even heard. Lord Jesus Christ, you refuse to bend the knee to a false god. Save us from offering our devotion, however weak, to cheap or easy religion, in the face of the harder path on which you bid us to follow you. Follow you in the everyday. Follow you in the decisions we make. Follow you in the jokes we laugh at. Follow you on our weekly shop. Follow you when the path gets muddy. Follow you in the dark and in the morning sun. Lord Jesus Christ, you saw Satan masquerading as an angel of light, and you shunned him. Give us wisdom to discern each subtle temptation, and in the face of all that is hellishly attractive, help us to choose the will of God. The will of God. The will of God for our world. The will of God for our city. 
the will of God for the stories we read in the newspapers and the stories we turn the page to avoid. Real choices. On the mountaintop, in the desert. Choices for our neighbours. Choices for our church. And always, always, the choices laid out before each of us, especially when we think there are none. Lord Jesus Christ, you refuse to turn stones into bread. You refuse to leap from the mountain top. You refuse to bend the knee to a false god. You shun the false angel of light. And you promise to be with us, to carry us and to carry those concerns close to us through the season of Lent, through Easter and beyond. For how could we do it alone? And why do we always try? We offer ourselves to you, our Lord and Saviour. Amen. May the gods of the mountaintop and the desert place, the God who shares our journey in all its complexity and diversity, bless us with the courage and humility to grow in faith and grace, this day and always. Mm-hmm.